Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Your Project Shepherd Construction Podcast. My name is Curtis Lawson with Shepherd Construction Advisors, and along with my industry expert friends, I am here to guide you through these four key components of a successful project, which are demonstrated by this simple drawing of a house. The foundation is proper planning. The left wall is your team, the right wall is communication, and the roof is proper execution. Have all four of these components in place and your project will succeed. Whether you're building or remodeling a custom home, or if you're an architect or designer looking for inspiration, or maybe you're just interested in building science and high-performance construction, you're in the right place. Please help us further our mission here by tapping that follow or subscribe button, push that notification bell, so that you know when our new episodes drop every week. And now, let's get to today's interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. Um, I am excited today to be joined by Morgan Reinert. Uh, Morgan is a partner in Old Home Rescue and Preserving, uh, which is based in Oklahoma City. Um, and they also have a podcast and a YouTube channel, uh, although Morgan and I were just chatting. It's something that they're kind of revamping, but I still wanted to mention that if you're interested in the stuff that we're talking about today, definitely go check out their YouTube channel and their podcast and learn more about these topics. Um, so Morgan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first off, Curtis, I have to uh, commend you. You are the first person to ever pronounce my name right uh, on the first try. So nice job there. Thanks. Well, I, I was actually listening to, to some of your stuff last night on, uh, on, on YouTube. I was like, I, I have to get his name right and I have to get some details <laughs> right. So I did my, my homework on this before we started. <laughs> so tell us about uh old home rescue and, and tell us about you and, and what your personal history is and how you got into uh historic oh you know what i should back up and just tell everybody that today's topic that we're talking about is um you know historic structures and uh preservation restoration of historic structures um and so i, I should probably have, have led with that that that's what we're talking about today so <laughs> yeah Morgan, tell us about kind of your your experience in that, how you got into this, and what you guys currently do. Yeah, so um, in uh, I actually have a degree in biology and health and sports science. I was on the path to being a uh, pharmacist. Applied for PCAT, or I was uh, going to take my PCAT, apply for pharmacy school, and then I just woke up one morning and I was like, "Man, this doesn't feel right. Something is off with this." and um, I always wanted to be working with my hands. My parents bought a $7,000 house when I was like 10 years old. Uh, everybody in town thought they were tearing it down to build a new house. And um, my dad remodeled one room and then we moved into it like two months later. And then it was, I think he's about 80% done now, like 20, 20 years later. But <laughs> that was that was my first introduction being like 10 years old. Uh, helping him reside a house and, and living through through that process. But uh, I went to college thinking that was the normal path. Um, felt felt like I had to get a degree in something. And once I got there, it just um, I excelled, but it it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. Um, the small conversations I want it just it drained me. And so I wanted to be working with my hands. I wanted to be do something something to do something more. And um, after I graduated from college, I actually went and I was a firefighter uh, full time for about five years. And uh, as fun as that was, I loved the problem solving side of it, but I, I still was just uh, reaching for that 
what do I want to be doing with my life? And and whereas a lot of people have a pivot in their like 40s, 50s when kids leave the house or things like that, or their uh, second careers in their in their life, I uh, I had that pretty early and got recruited in 2017 by my now business partner Ty to join a uh, at that time a historic window restoration company called Wood Window Rescue, and in 2017 I came in and he was in the middle of uh, filming an HGTV pilot, which uh, being restoration based was the highest cost, the least amount of sponsors. And we were trying to um, be the um, follow up to fixer upper. So it was just the, the recipe of ingredients there didn't go too well for the HGTV show. But uh, at that point in time, we spent from 2000, he started in 2016 through 2020 being just a historic window restoration company, uh, doing projects really from Dallas to Kansas City. And um, in 2020, we were launching um, Dallas and Kansas City satellite location with the launch dates of being March of 2020. And uh, every, everybody can kind of kind of fill in, fill in the details at that point in time of, um, it was an immediate, immediate pivot of what are we going to do? How are we going to do this differently? And at that point in time, it was let's leverage the information and the expertise that we've gained in uh, really um, kind of becoming regionally known in the window restoration field um, to doing more exterior envelope historic preservation projects. And so uh, there we were, March of 2020, Oklahoma City shut down. Uh, within a week, we rebranded to Old Home Rescue. And um, there was still, uh, we rebranded Ultimum Rescue doing those exterior projects and kind of just doing whatever we can through those next several months. But we felt this underlying, um, uh, there, was, there was a need to expand this. There was a need for the, the knowledge that we've learned to grow more and do more. And um, we're still currently running Ultimum Rescue, which has morphed its way into a historic preservation general contractor focusing on uh, historic homes, buildings, and really museums, loving telling the stories of our past. And then in 2021, we, uh, instead of launching satellite locations, we uh, reformulated what that growth strategy was. And we launched a um, preservation franchise that focuses on wood rot repairs. I know you guys are in the Houston area, so that uh, Gulf area is a level five rot area where there's uh, you can you can walk down the block and there's rot on every house. And so uh, we have formed what we believe is the first uh, preservation franchise in the United States. That's awesome. So there's a lot to kind of go back and unpack there. Um, the first thing I want to touch on is uh, kind of how you um, didn't set out to do this. You know, you want you went to school for for one thing, thought you're going to do something else and kind of transition into, into this and um, not to, not to dive too deep on this, but, you know, I, I had a similar path, you know, I was a, I was a music major in college and thought I was going to either play or teach music for a living. Um, and then I was in the restaurant business for a while before I got into construction. That's a massive difference from being a uh, building science expert. now. I mean, a big shift. I mean, I mean, much like, uh, <laughs> much like, you know, pharmacy and, and sports science to, to uh, restoration too. Right. But um, I think that, uh, you know, not to downplay the importance of college. Cause I, I loved my time in college. 
I think it's a great experience for any person to have, whether or not they're going to pursue what they're studying or, or not. It's a great just growth experience. Um, and I think everybody that can go to college should at least give it a shot. Uh, but, you know, there's so, as, as you know, there's so many fantastic jobs and careers out there, be it in, uh, you know, the trades, uh, just in, in construction and in, in general that don't require a college degree. Uh, and if a kid who's interested in that can and, and should consider an apprenticeship or uh, some sort of vocational training out of school and don't get pushed into that. Uh, I have to go to college mentality. So that's my, that's my PSA. If you, if, 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 if people are listening and they have a kid who's likes to work with their hands, don't force them to go to college, like encourage them because they can make really good money as a general contractor, a subcontractor, a tradesperson, whatever. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where like, I remember being that high school student who was excelling and because a teacher thinks you're a counselor, guidance counselor thinks you're smart, that you should go be an engineer. Well, I mean, I, I actually started out doing that when I got to college and it just didn't fit who I was. I, running my personality test now, I know who I am uh, very well, but um, it's allowed me to coming into the trades. There's so many opportunities out there for, for people to truly make a six figure income. And it trades in general, but then historic preservation trades, the trade shortage that we have is, I think it's only going to get worse over the next several decades. And until we make a, a strategic shift um, at like the high school level, shifting people into something different. Um, but then whether you're going into school and you do construction management or, or you want to leave high school and enter the trades and enter that apprenticeship, but Going and niching down into the historic preservation trades, this is one of those areas that I would love if I had a dozen painters to choose from. But but because things are so much different on historic preservation, I've got, instead of a queue of six to 12 subcontractors, I have a queue of one or two in our painting and masonry and everything like that. And I know that there's there's so much opportunity out there that I wish more people were uh, one diving into the trades and then two diving, diving into preservation trades. I have a kid who's working for us right now who just started a few months ago and he's fresh out of college. I think, I think he studied the sports science or something in college. He was captain of a college football team. And, uh, after college he got married and didn't know what he wanted to do, but he knew he didn't want to sit in an office and he didn't want to do anything that he went to school for. He's like, man, I wouldn't even have gone to college if it wasn't for football. That's the only reason I went was to play football. And now that I'm out, I don't want to do any of that stuff. He's like, I want to work with my hands. I want to, I want to learn construction. And so he came to work for us. Um, you know, and just think, you know, that's, I'm again, I'm not saying it's a waste of time. He, he, uh, he played college football, had a great experience, but if a kid like that were to come straight to us, you know, at 18 or 19 years old, instead of 23, 24, they'd already be five years ahead of the curve on learning things and making money and, and, you know, instead of starting off at, you know, whatever he's making 50 or 60 grand a year, could be making 90 or a hundred by now. So. Absolutely. And, and there is, there's that opportunity. If, if we will push our kids that the trades are an option for them. Yeah. All right. Sorry. So that was a, that was, <laughs> that was a to total, total side topic that I didn't mean to get into, but I, I you know, from your experience and from my experience, I, I just kind of felt like we should touch on that. 
So let's let's talk about historic buildings. You know, we see the terms, um, you know, historic preservation and restoration and remodel repair. These different terms kind of thrown about, um, but they really mean very different things. Um, and especially when you're talking about like a true historic structure. So if you're working with whether it's a home that's in the historic district, I know here in Houston we have several historic districts, and what you can do on those houses is is restricted. Um, and I'm sure some in, in Oklahoma City and in your market, I know that you guys have worked on like downtown buildings that might be historic buildings or museums or things like that, right? And so when you're working on those types of buildings and you're bidding these things and talking to the people making decisions, there's a big difference in this terminology, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is, it, it's kind of getting caught in the weeds sometimes, but it's important to understand because um, one, I, I love telling this, that um, by the National Park Service, who kind of governs the the, the historic treatment of um, buildings or the treatment of historic buildings, it the definition of a historic structure is 50 years or older. That means 1973 is considered a historic building. I know there's a few cases, uh, even up to like a mid-80s building in St. Louis that recently got put on the uh, National Register of Historic Places, which is uh, really crazy to think about. And it's it sent the National Park Service into kind of this frenzy of like, we don't even have preservation briefs, which are like the technical instructions and guidelines on what you should do and how you should do it for these buildings. They don't even have them written for these uh, eras of buildings. But so that's kind of what the National Park Service def defines as historic is 50 plus years old. Um, inside of that, it's really critical to know that uh, restoration is taking the building or the uh, items that you're working on back to original form and function. So a historic window restoration includes um, restoring it to its original appearance, but also its original function as well. But you have this other word called preservation that's... Um, Preservation boils down to maintenance and repairs. And with historic structures and um, components, of, components of historic buildings, it, it gets to be a lot of labor. There's also a lot of rules that you have to follow in a certain way that you have to do it. So sometimes we can hit these uh, really labor-intensive um, projects if we go with a historic restoration project. But you have some ability working through your state historic preservation office to shift uh, that scope of work into a preservation mentality, maintenance and repairs. And that's really what a lot of historic structures have struggled with is the lack of maintenance. When it comes to our cars, we would balk at the idea of never change, buying a new car and then never changing our oil for the first 100,000 miles. But when we buy a home, we, we do basically that where we we buy these homes uh they had it painted by the cheapest painter possible prior to you buying it and then all of a sudden three or five years later it starts to peel and we get immune to it because it's an old home and next thing you know we've gone 10 15 years living in that house and then we do the same thing and it, it creates this ma deferred maintenance cycle where we're never actually getting out in front of the, de the deferred maintenance. and so that's preservation, restoration. You also have rehabilitation. That means that 
uh, kind of like the building that I'm in now, which is called the H Street Marketplace. It's a historic building here in Oklahoma City where it previously served as one function and they're coming in and changing the intended use of the building. And in that, they're preserving some elements, they're restoring some elements, but then the overall function of the building itself has changed from its original intended use. On, on some of these buildings, I, I think it's it's hard to know sometimes like what's even worth saving. I think sometimes people, uh, whether it's a house people buy or sometimes even developers get into this thing where they buy a building and, and then once they buy it, they realize or, or they start thinking, why did I buy this? And so, you know, what are, what are kind of the considerations to even think about, you know, if is this building even worth messing with? That That is probably one of the toughest things in historic preservation is, is that cost-benefit analysis. One of the hardest things about historic preservation is knowing how far to go, how far to uh, push back into restoration and preservation and things like that. And so it takes a lot of creative problem-solving and value engineering. Um, in a project that we're working on now, they they sent some blanket specs for a window restoration project um, as part of a multi-building complex historic tax credit project. And the the way the specs came across, it was like the Cadillac of window restoration, while also not having uh, probably the best end result as far as building science goes to to those structures because the way they the way they wrote the specs on it 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 pushes you into for us on that project it was like a 1.2 million dollar window restoration project wow and lots of conversations with the general contractor like i i truly don't even want to do this level of project because i think we can do the exact same end result by shifting our historic preservation brief and getting into it a little bit more from preservation brief 9 to preservation brief 10 means that we're going from window restoration to exterior paint. And by doing something as simple as that, you can cut almost 60% out of your project cost while also adding a storm window to it so that you have uh, your decreased air infiltration and energy efficiency benefits and all of those other things. But when we strictly take uh, a lot of historic preservation specs as um, like those copy and paste it from architect to architect, without being able to collaborate on the, the beginning phase of the things, we can really elevate costs without having a hold on a return on the end result. I realize that when we're talking about uh, houses, you know, the money part of this conversation is not always the most important because if people have a love for historic homes or if they, they, they bought that house because of its sentimental value, historic value, whatever that is, um, money might not be the big driver, right? So even though it doesn't make financial sense to do it, sometimes they still go ahead and do it just out of the love of preservation and the love of history, right? There, man, there are those people that I love when we do our, um, we call it contactless consultation. It's the first call that we have that with homeowners usually or building owners. And sometimes you just know when people are in it for the right reasons because they'll say i just want to be a steward of this home they don't think about it as i'm living here for the next three to seven years um they truly think about it that it's it, it's their timeline on the historic history of of this home and this neighborhood 
which then compounds to this city. I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole about talking about homes being disposable to some degree, especially certain eras of homes being disposable. Here, most of our, you know, quote unquote, historic homes that are, that are in the historic districts in Houston are kind of like the pre-1940, let's say. So they fall kind of like the 1900 to 1930s. And that's kind of the most common. Houston's not as old of a city as as some of the places on the East Coast are where you're dealing with really old structures. But, you know, once you kind of get into the post-war era, 40s, 50s and on, at least here in Houston, a lot of the houses were built really quickly. They were never really meant to be kind of long-term housing stock. And so I think that's kind of why we think of those homes more as disposable because they were kind of like the, the, the track homes of their day. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're very similar here in Oklahoma City, where those uh, early, uh, so Oklahoma City comes about the land run in 1889. And then those initial homes that were built over the, the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years, a lot of those were uh, torn down as the city developed and pushed out into what are now our historic neighborhoods, where it really starts in the 19-teens through, again, the 1940s, just like you guys. Um, but the same thing, we have those 1940s, 50s, post-war houses that were just just thrown together for uh, families coming back and having their homes after World War II and things like that, where and there, there, is, there is definitely some quality uh, questionabilities there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I, I don't think there are very many houses that were probably intentionally built to be really long-term houses. Like, like, I think even a lot of the stuff that, well, definitely the stuff here in Houston that was built, let's say, in the 1920s and 30s, most of that was never thought of as, I'm, I'm building something that's going to be here for the next 300 years. Uh, most of those were little shotgun houses, cottages. A lot of them were like a, a Sears kit house even uh, out of the Sears catalog. Um, but now we look back and say that has historic value, whereas at the time it was just another another typical house getting thrown up, right? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's, there's these um, large developers of that era who they were making spec homes. I mean, even in some of these homes, they were, they were using cheap stuff uh from hardware to other things but it's just a difference of like quality over the over the decades because in in a lot of these repairs we get the unique ability versus a lot of people who do remodels on 1980s through newer homes we get the ability to look at something that's 120 years old and you get to see this timeline of like how things were built but how they were repaired in the 40s and then they were repaired again in the 50s. And a lot of times we start to see a drastic decline in the, the quality of the repairs from the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s just because our wood quality goes down. And that's a, a lot of the historic value, even with some of the mistakes that have been made on these homes over their lifetime. The fallback is that they're built with rot-resistant wood, with true dimensional lumber, with high-quality bricks. And um, either a, a Portland line based mortar versus what we have uh, now being used in those homes. Right. I work in these houses. You work in these houses. So, so we we've both seen probably a lot of different um, issues. But there's probably like kind of some some common recurring issues that you find over and over in a lot of these structures. 
and obviously the big one, and this is one of the reasons that you guys are in business, are, are windows, uh, and, and that's related to wood rot and weather. And I think a lot of building problems in general can be related to weather and water and stuff like that, right? But in the historic preservation restoration space, what would you say are the most common types of call them failures or issues that yeah. you come across? So uh, just starting with the roof down, um, very simple issues that uh, for most people who are going to be listening to this podcast think is like a no brainer. But a lot of times that uh, we're, we're seeing five figure repairs needed on homes because of a missing kickout flashing. Because of the fact that we went from a roof with skip decking and cedar shake shingles to now we put solid sheathing on top of it and shingles. And we raise that up, but we save uh, 10 cents a foot or whatever it is for a one inch drip edge versus a two inch. And when you make that small of an error, it allows that water to drip in into your soffits. And next thing you know, you just have water and mold and rot. And it's just a mess of things. So it's not that we are seeing these catastrophic failures. It's in the details of getting something between from 90% to 100%. And, and just taking those details into consideration. With the roof, like I said, it's, it's mostly flashing. Um, in our drip edge issues, we've had a number of those over the last few years that we've, we've faced. When it comes down the wall to um, painting, wood use, and repairs and stuff like that, um, another instance is we recently looked at a museum that um, seven or eight years ago, it was a statehood hotel like think about those wild west hotels that you see uh it was one of those absolutely amazing well the paint started flaking too much and they decided that the less expensive route was going to be let's just pull it off let's put some house wrap on it and then let's reside it well key issues that they missed there are do we have a rain screen and then any new wood that we're using which is like a in our area of like Southern yellow pine and stuff like that for those novelty sightings. Um, anytime we're putting a new wood on um, the exterior of any building, we have to prime it on all sides and then we cut it to length and we have to prime our inputs and then install it. And what I saw when I looked at this, this historic motel was that every butt joint on the entire building was rotting. Every, uh, wood drip it that they do the detailing perfectly on what it should look like, the moldings that it should be, the returns on the crown molding underneath it, on the header casing and everything. It was perfect, except for the fact that they used a low quality wood that wasn't primed on all sides. And eight years later, I can pretty, or eight years later, that house or that, that motel is rotting all over the place and needs some incredible, an incredible amount of epoxy repairs to it, or it needs to start fresh like they were eight years ago. So the problem wasn't so much like the original structure, right? The problem was when they did, went back and did the repair, you know, they created more issues, kind of like on the roof you're talking about, like, like the original roof design, the original roof install was probably fine for a long time, but when they went back and re-roofed it and put the new drip edge on there, that's where the mistakes were made. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, the the majority of issues that we end up seeing aren't the original building materials and the real original building construction is most often 
uh, still in really good condition. Even windows that have been neglected for uh, decades upon decades, they still do really well. It's when we start incorporating um, new technology or new woods and we start merging them with historic without heavy consideration, those two start to really conflict each other. And about the time we start adding air conditioners to buildings and, and doing all of these remodels is that as these buildings are 20, 30 years old, we start to see the implications of those things merging uh, pretty heavily. Yeah. And, and I think, I think a lot of that is that, um, you know, over the years, you know, may, maybe 10 years ago, uh, they probably, or, or whatever the roof was changed out, right. They got some roof quotes. They probably picked the cheapest or cheapest or middle roof quote, and they didn't really vet the quote and they didn't read the specs. They didn't see one inch versus two inch drip edge. And, you know, whoever made the decision to put that new roof on didn't really kind of, go through the right selection process uh and the same thing with the siding they're like oh we just got a quote for some siding let's do it without really thinking through the right way to to do that to preserve their building yeah and i mean with with where new construction is at in high performance buildings and the thought that has to go into that and the pre-construction services and all of those things to, to slow down on the front end and then so you can move forward with a, a really high quality project. Well, it's the same way with historic that we need to slow down. We need to understand why we need to do these things and how we need to do things. And a $7 piece of kickout flashing solves a $25,000 repair uh, <laughs> on a home. Yeah. What are some other kind of uh, modern applications of materials and techniques that you can think of that, that cause problems on historic structures. I mean, I, I guess one that springs to mind for me is insulation. And I've talked about this with toner before, you know, where people, they, they go in and they slap some spray foam insulation or they change kind of the airflow pattern through the structure with different types of insulation. Is that something that you deal with up there in your area as well? So because we focus on the exterior building envelope, we don't deal with it as much. However, we recently finished a project where the homeowners are dealing with the implications of that. It's a uh, close to 3,000 square foot former sorority house. And um, they had an interior contractor do the remodel on it, did a really great job, but maybe didn't take into account the, the building science and um, HVAC implications of that, and then spray foamed the entire historic structure. Uh, what they have now is a massive humidity issue that's going on. Uh, we're on the back end of that where we're going to be installing some storm windows for the air infiltration side of things and energy efficiency. Um, but it's actually something I, I referred him to you guys to um, maybe have you guys come up and take a look at that because it is, it's an issue where he was dumping gallons and gallons of water every single day from his home just to keep up with the uh, humidity differences that have been affected by the new heat and air unit and plus the spray foam in that home. So I guess the lesson in, in kind of that and in the last few things that we've talked about with the roofing and the siding, all that kind of stuff is, it goes back to our, our, our whole concept of properly planning the project. It's like you, you need to uh, hire these people who are experts in these areas. You've got to hire people who, you know, not, not just the cheapest guy, you, you got to hire the, the, the company that, is well-versed in preservation if you're a historic structure or people that can help you diagnose or not diagnose because that would be after the fact, but, but help you plan 
how the changes that you want to make with your HVAC and your insulation, how all that's going to play together to give you a well-performing uh, house building structure, whatever, right? Let's uh, let's talk specifically about windows for a little bit because I know that's again kind of what you guys have really focused on, and also preserving. Yeah, you know, that's that's your your wood rot repair franchise, but that I think probably mostly deals with windows. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a lot of a lot of its work does revolve around windows and doors, just because there's a high cost of replacement to those those things. I mean, it's easy to change out a piece of siding, generally speaking. But if there if there's a problem with the window and the door, it's not going to function. Um, I, I know here in Houston on our historic districts, they require us to keep the original windows. Like, there's no option. We have to keep the windows. <laughs> and so what that means is in order to meet other codes, for example, the egress code. So for people to be able to get out of the bedroom in case of a fire or for firefighters to be able to come into the home in case of fire, you have to meet this egress code. But I, I would say that on a majority, probably a majority of these old houses, the old wood windows that had the the pulleys and ropes and lead weights and all that stuff, they were painted shut many years ago and haven't operated in a very long time. But now we have to preserve those windows and bring them back to a functioning state. So that's what you guys do. Yeah. So this is where we started in 2016. My business partner, Ty, um, was, uh, <laughs> he was that ignorant contractor who came into a historic neighborhood for a fire and water rescue. It's his first historic um, remodel or restoration project that he did. He tore out some diamond light windows out of the front elevation. You know, those like amazing gable in diamond light windows. He threw them in the trash. Uh. <laughs> Next thing you know, the Historic Preservation Commission um, was coming up and saying that you can't do this. And what happened from there is that uh, he was like, well, tell me who can. And they gave him three names. The first one didn't answer. The second one said, uh, thanks for calling. I'm a month before I can give you an estimate. And then I'm six months before I can get you the windows. And then the, the third one was an older gentleman that's about 90 miles away who uh, said, I'm, I'm getting ready to retire. But come down and I'll show you everything I know. And that took this fire and water restoration business to let's work on historic buildings. And then it was just this extreme need for historic window restoration. And that's really where we spent from 2016 and 2020 and really is our, our niche now where we do a lot of work. But it, it can be incredibly complicated, but it can also be simplified a lot too. In working, so if, if you're doing, if you as a general contractor are working on a project in Houston or wherever, if there are alternatives to window restoration, and window replacement. Um, if you have grants or things paying like like that for your windows, it makes a whole lot of sense to do the full blown window restoration. But I think I heard you guys in a previous podcast talking about like it could be thirty five hundred dollars a window, and that's that's absolutely true because for somebody to restore a one over one window or even a six over six window, that's twenty five to thirty five hours of work plus material and. And prices can escalate quickly, and then they've got to follow the RRP, let's say, rules and all of that for an occupied structure. So how do we make something work that's an alternative to that? And um, when we made those pivots through COVID, I started going back out, doing more consulting and really listening to people and starting to, to develop 
our specifications after some paint failures. And what we found was that uh, people really just want their rot repaired, their windows to look great, maybe a dozen of them in all of the 45 windows in the house to open, and then they want them to be energy efficient. So how do you do that in a historic structure? Um, that's kind of where preserving came into play. In 2021, we uh, started our, our growth strategy for how are we going to um, do more with what we've been doing. We did that through, um, we, we started a franchise that is a um, home service based. It's based out of Ikea Soul and they carry a few different types of epoxy products and they can come and whether you're in a historic structure or you're in a high-end neighborhood that's around a lake, it has a gate on it or a golf course or wherever that is, and they have those covering restrictions to say you have to have wood windows. Well, this was a case where in 2019, we actually won an award for uh, a national award for reproducing this amazing eight foot wide by 12 foot tall window. And it was it was really cool, except for the fact that we were in the person's home for about two weeks. Uh, we manufactured it off site, got on site. It was an inch too tall. Had to make some site modifications. A piece of glass broke, and it just like spiraled. And all of that could have been fixed because there was this much rot on the bottom quarter of that window because the sprinkler was watering the house and not the the flower bed. And um, that's so. Whether it's a a newer construction home, it's got those wood windows on it. We've been able to develop a service that allows us to complete repairs in about 48 hours we come out and we can fix this much rot on one window because when the window replacement person comes in you have to worry about well this one window needs re repaired or fixed um so my only option is to replace it well if it's a standard window it's 2500 to 3500 dollars, and it's going to be a 24 week timeline and on top of all of that, it's not going to match the rest of the windows in your house. So let's replace them all. And all of a sudden, it's $85,000. Yeah. So that's where we've done a lot of rot repairs to kind of bridge that gap. And um, with preserving, it's about 90% less than replacement. And then even on the painting side of it for a historic window, we teach workshops and we do our window restoration preservation uh, work. But it... It allows us to come in and use a high quality painting process for typically the exterior that's kind of been neglected. And that um, is a, a cheaper alternative to the full-blown window restoration package. And then a lot of times it's coming in on the back end and adding the storm window to it um, so that you have that energy efficiency and air infiltration decrease. You know, one of the things that people don't think about when they think about replacing windows because I have this conversation all the time on sale on sales calls for our uh, construction business is that domino effect that takes place with remodeling in general. But, you know, if you want to replace the window, well, now you're, you've got drywall repair, you've got trim repair on the inside. You might have some brick repair, some siding repair on the outside. And so, you know, while that actual, actual window might only be, you know, if it's a kind of like a national brand, replacement window that that window might be 800 or a thousand bucks for a good quality wood, wood window it's all the other things that go into it it's uh so that thousand dollar window turns into you know 
three or four thousand dollar job for one. Uh, plus, you have the inconvenience of all that dust and hot air coming into the house or cold air, depending on the time of year. And so, it, it, you know, replacing windows in an occupied structure is not a is not a fun process usually. Um, and I can speak to that because I just did it on my own house last year. <laughs> so I, I had holes all over my house last year, so I, I hated it. But yeah, so it's it's that domino effect that people don't think about. And if you can cut that down to, you know, to one or two days for, for one window or maybe even a week if, if you're there working on several windows. Um, aside from the cost, it's just the disruption in life that you're saving as well, right? It's incredibly intrusive into your life because... Now you're taking off work because you've got to let all of these people in your house. And it's the unintended consequences of, are they an RRP certified firm? So pre-1978, you have lead paint that's involved. It gets disturbed and goes through your house. And they just opened up all 24 windows in your house. And, um, and then on top of all of that, is it installed appropriately? So... That's probably one of the biggest fail points in uh, Windows in general is the improper installation. So we've, in our, our path with subcontractors, we've had one who came in and wanted to work with us and his claim that he was uh, Lowe's number one uh, window installer. And he didn't uh, appropriately flash a window on the entire house. And so we had to undo a whole bunch of stuff and go forward. But it's not only the cost of the window replacement at that point in time, but it's five, 10 years from now as we've had uh, some water infiltration and the framing's brought it out as well. And we've touched on this in some past episodes and I'd like to do an entire episode about kind of the two ways to do replacement windows. Uh, and that is doing the typical the typical replacement window where they, where they just go around and saws all it out and pop the new one in, put some screws in and caulk it. You know, that's one method. Um, you know, we, we prefer, and it costs more money for sure, but we prefer to actually take off the brick or the siding around where that window is going and do a proper installation with a, a nailing flange, a nailing fin. And that way you can get in there, you can tape it, you can flash it, repair your brick, repair your siding. And yes, it takes more time and costs more money, but, um, it's such a better install and you're not relying on that little bead of caulking that runs around your window to protect your entire wall assembly from rotting out. Yeah. A lot of times when people are doing those window inserts uh, in a historic structure where they're just taking out the sashes and then just dropping a, a window into the existing frame, like I said, there's, there's just a bead of caulking, if that, uh, on a lot of those. Because um, it's, it's just a cheaper installation method. But we are... We're practical preservationists. I understand that there's a time and place for window replacement or replacement of anything in, in that fact. But um, when it comes time to do a proper um, replacement window on a historic structure, a full frame replacement is definitely the way to go so that you can make sure everything's taken care of in, in that installation process. So back to preserving and, and how you guys work on that. Um, is, is that is that an um, epoxy resin product that you're using for your repairs, or how are you doing that? Yeah, so it is a, an epoxy resin that's been around for several decades now. Um, the the manufacturer has it's been installed on a number of historic sites from Mount Vernon, Monticello, Statue of Liberty, but we've actually worked with the manufacturer to tailor that to our specific locations. So um, it is it's. The building science behind it is kind of like boring, but 
the the end result for the user is it's so fun because it is coming in and say Curtis, you have one window rotted on your house or like the bottom of that that front entry door, the grand entrance, but that door is twelve thousand dollars to replace. What we can do is is come in and our technician shows up in a Kia Soul, unpacks a handful of tools, they dig out all of the rot, and then they use a two part consolidant to not only just where the rot is, but all of the areas around it, they'll pre-drill with a eighth inch drill bit, push a whole bunch of consolidant inside of it. And then they mix a two part epoxy on top of it. And that's just like molding clay where they can kind of shape it and form it and all of that stuff. And then we leave for a day. And on the uh, about 24 hours later, we come back and we can sand it and paint it. And from about six feet away, you'd never know that it's there. And, and it's, it's incredibly convenient and uh, so much less expensive than, and intrusive than replacing that front door, those windows. Do you guys also get into doing the other types of repairs that we talked about, like the, the ropes and the pulleys and the lead weights, and then like replacing, you know, like the old glass and trying to match the old wavy glass and all that kind of stuff. Is that a service that you also get involved in? Yeah. So with, with old home rescue, that's definitely something that we do. Um, more often than not, it tends to be on the small commercial side of things, museums and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's been a, a six year database building of, if it's this particular type of waviness in a glass, then it's that manufacturer versus this one. And, and going in and uh, re-roping all those windows, if the weights are missing, who do we get them from? And there's a really good Window Preservation Alliance is a really good organization that we've been able to combine some uh, information between all of us. And really interesting, they, they got about eight or 10 window restoration professional companies from the U.S. to come together with one or two architects, and they wrote a uh, window restoration specification from their perspective with their products and all of those things. Um, so that's been kind of a database that everybody who joins this industry can uh, jump in and they get a six-year head start on where we were. Preserving, though, is basically just focused on doing the rot repairs and not necessarily getting into all those other sorts of things, right? So Preserving is just our wood rot repair company. Got it. There where you guys are in the Gulf and then up basically to DC is what the AWPA calls a level five rot uh, deterioration zone. I it feel like you put a piece of wood outside and it's rotted by the next day. And uh, so we've, we've basically developed a the home service business that allows people to come in and work in their own neighborhoods. For, for us here in Oklahoma City, we, we work in about 10 neighborhoods and that's it. Not like the whole city. But just those uh, particular micro uh, markets where we get to work with truly our neighbors. That's great. So if if people are interested in um, in preserving and there's not it, well, I guess two things here. If if they're interested in doing this as a business, if they're if they love pr preservation and want to be a preserving uh, franchisee, how do they go about doing that? They can go to gopreserving.com. That'll give them all of the information that they need to know. And then they'll start uh, being able to get in contact with us and we can walk them through that whole process. Awesome. And then kind of back to the, the general historic and, and the window stuff um, specifically, I wanted to back up because we uh, I was asking if Preserving did these kinds of things, but uh, for Old, home, Old House Rescue on the window rebuilding, 
what types of things typically go wrong with these windows? Because again, you, you, they're not complicated, right? There's there's the there's the sashes, there's the weights, the pulleys, and the glass. But what 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 goes wrong on those windows aside from just wood rot, obviously? Yeah. So when you're working on a window restoration project, best thing that you can do is restore the windows that are existing. However, if they're not there or you have to build replica sash, the biggest thing is that you have to choose a high quality wood that you're going to replace them with. We have the manufacturer that we bought out in 2017 using Poplar. It just, he was trying to value engineer some projects and they ended up rotting about five years later. Whenever we're seeing, I mean, Cypress isn't what it used to be. Spanish cedar isn't what it used to be. Those types of things. So high quality woods, whenever we do it, if you're looking for a locally sourced, uh, for us, that's Sapili. We use a lot of, however, our go-to has always been a Goya. It's 50-year rot warranty. There's nothing better that I love putting my name to than a, a, a company that wants to warranty wood rot for 50 years. Just like you mentioned uh, in your market, there's not many people here in our market that do true window restorations. I made some of the same mistakes that Ty made when I was younger, you know, like uh, 20 years ago. I, I'd go in and start tearing those things out. And people were like, wait, wait, you can't do that. And so I tried to find guys to restore windows it was the same problem that i came across it's like oh there's there's one old guy over here that does window <laughs> restorations and there's another company but they're booked out six months or more so uh yeah we kind of did something similar one of our carpenters just said hey you know we're, we're good carpenters we can figure out how to do this so let's just take a window out take it apart and learn how to do it so yeah. we started doing our own windows but uh yeah it's a skill and you have to be a good finished carpenter to be able to disassemble those, do all the stuff to them, and put them back together. Yeah, and it's it's one of the traits that I have seen that there's so much of a crossover between, and you need several different skill sets because not only are you a good carpenter to uh, fix the window itself once it's out or trim it once it's trying to go back in, but you're also a, a glazer, you are a painter, and then you're this like weird window mechanic because. Um, Historic windows are something that you have to make look beautiful. You have to make them go up and down and they have to be weather stripped. So it's a lot in, in hiring for employees and for you guys doing it in the past. It's, it's, a, it's a cumbersome thing to do sometimes. It's honestly hard to make money on doing trim carpenter as a, uh, trim carpentry as a general contractor. It's something that we, we, have, we have an in-house carpentry staff here, um, but it's hard to get people to, to want to pay for those skills. Uh, especially in, in the market that we're in here that has a, a good bit of uh, cheap labor. it's uh, There's not many people who want to pay top dollar for a real craftsman to to work on their project. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we understand with historic preservation is that sometimes people get into these homes in these designated neighborhoods. They don't realize what they're getting into and they don't realize the cost. And so a lot of times we'll do workshops that uh, teach from a preservation mindset. Um, and, and really, our goal, when we did them uh, a handful of years ago, it was uh, we taught the traditional method and it pushed all of these people out. They got overwhelmed. And then six months later, they call us back to do the work. And that's not what we intended to do. But the alternative to that is that we modified what that workshop looks like and have really said, like, this is what I want you to go be able to do in a weekend. And if you're not going to do it in a weekend, then I've provided you with a scope of work that you can hand to a local painter 
And if they will just follow like half the rules on this sheet, it'll be 10 times better than if they would have tried to figure it out themselves. And they also would have priced it appropriately so that they don't go out of business too. And it's really a win from all situations. And so that's where it's been able to bring in preserving and do the rot repairs, bring your local painter, have him do the exterior, and then put a storm window on it. So you lengthen out that maintenance cycle from 10 years to 20 years. That's ultimately the best path for a residential window project in a historic neighborhood. I wish we had a preserving here in Houston because we, we're are on a project right now uh, where some uh, a, a historic house, actually it was like a 1950s or 60s house, but it's the former governor's mansion. It had some very um, unique bowed wood windows that were all rotted and we couldn't find anybody to repair them. And we ended up ordering, ordering replacement windows and they were $15,000 a piece. Yeah. Having your product here in this market would have saved that homeowner a lot of money and a lot of time. Yeah. And so we've got uh, a, a franchise location in Orlando, Florida, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and we will be announcing one next month. Houston's a market that we would love to be in. Um, so like I said, that, that Gulf Coast is a, a level five rot deterioration zone, which means that this is, this is a prime prime area for somebody to be able to, um, whether they're working in construction and want to make a shift to um, something that's more niche, or they're looking to quit maybe their day job, uh, or maybe that second half that they're just looking for something different. Um, Preservance perfect for, for something like that in the Houston market and, and a lot of other places throughout the US where uh, we're facing some rot deterioration. Also, residential spending is going down and they don't want to spend those high uh, COVID money projects that we're, we're getting funded for quite some time. And so as those budgets kind of constrict, we're looking for something more convenient, sustainable and affordable. All right. Well, so we will be sure and link Preservin uh, on on our show notes. And uh, I'm sure that Danielle will, will pop it on the screen when she's editing this as well. Uh, so if people who are listening or watching or inter- are interested in, in doing that, uh, there's, a, there's a big need for it. So uh, if you want a, a new career or a, a new side hustle in Houston, uh, definitely something people should check into. And we'll also be sure and, and link your, your stuff for Old Home Rescue, too, because you guys are doing some cool work. And I, I really enjoyed uh, watching your YouTube videos and listening to some of your podcast as I was preparing for this. So. And y'all do some great stuff on Instagram, which is where we first connected as well. Yeah, we. I appreciate you having me today, Curtis. Thanks a lot for being here, Morgan. And uh, thank you all for listening to this new episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. And we will see you next time. If you found us helpful and enjoyed listening, please support us by liking and subscribing here on your podcast platform. And also join us on our YouTube channel. We want to continue to bring you high quality content and expert guests. And your support truly helps us to continue this journey. If you have any questions for me or my guests or any feedback for us, you can email us at podcast at yourprojectshepherd.com. Thanks again.